Hello, this is Jacques Hebert, and you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. Have to say, I'm a little sad not to have my partner in crime, Simone Terrio Malaz, with me today. She's busy up in our nation's capital, uh, building support for coastal restoration here in Louisiana. So she's doing a good thing, but uh, I'm flying solo today, but that's all right, because we've got two great guests on the show. Um, We're going to be discussing Louisiana's coast and the wildlife that uh, depend on it. We're going to have Dr. Eric Johnson later in the show talking about the variety of bird species that depend on Louisiana's coast. He is a director of bird conservation with Audubon, Louisiana. But first up, we have Dr. Andy Nyman. Um, Dr. Andy Nyman is a wildlife, wetland wildlife scientist with Louisiana State University. Um, And we're really excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Andy. Well, thank you for having me. It's, uh, yeah, it's great to, to talk to you today. Um, I'm curious, you know, I know apart from our Louisiana LSU Tigers, uh, which we know are already far superior, how does the wildlife in Louisiana compare to most places? Uh, it, yeah, the wildlife in Louisiana is superior. We just, uh, we just have a whole lot more of it than most other coastal states do. We've, uh, you know, you look at Texas and Mississippi, you know, they got alligators, they got oysters, but not like we got them. And what about the wildlife that depend on our coast? I mean, does our coast, you know, in Louisiana, does it support a unique quality and quantity of, of wildlife? Uh, the thing to me that is uh, unique about it is the quantity of wildlife here. You know, we, we, you know we, the species that we have here do occur other places, but uh, they don't occur in other places as much as they occur here. And, you know, some of these are... Uh, year-round residents, but others are migrating through uh, and using us only part of the year. But whether you're resident or migrant, you know, we've just got a whole lot more room for those animals in coastal Louisiana than you do in uh, other Gulf states. That's right. I know. The, I mean, for folks who have maybe been out to some of the barrier islands and other a little bit more remote places of the coast, you just get out there and particularly during migrating and migratory and nesting season, you just see so many birds. And that's just one example. But um, it really is amazing to see that that quantity. Um, in in talking about the coast, I mean, people often refer to it as this, you know, kind of blanket monolithic zone. But in fact, you know, I'm sure you know, and, and I've learned that Louisiana's coast is very dynamic and diverse, and it supports an extensive uh, biodiversity of flora and fauna. So, can you talk a little bit about um, some of those different coastal habitats and and how they're important for different types of wildlife? Yeah, the um, yeah, it's true. You know, uh, every acre almost has its own uh, history, its own challenges, and its own opportunities, uh, and its own wildlife. And you know, so we can't talk about every single acre and what makes them unique. So I'm going to kind of uh, lump them into uh, two big classes. You know, first of all, I'll just say you know the the freshwater marshes, and these are the ones that are dominated by a lot of things you'll see growing in ditches around uh, you know around. South Louisiana or southern U.S., cattails and uh, bullwhips, uh, water lilies, and, and then uh, everything else we'll just call non-fresh. Uh, on the Atlantic coast, they would call that salt marsh. Here in the Gulf Coast, we kind of break our that non-fresh stuff into intermediate brackish and salt. It's all got a bunch of spartina grasses dominating it for the most part. Uh, but, you know, you could break it down just to fresh and salt or fresh intermediate brackish and salt. And then 
what's, what's good about using those plant communities to classify the marshes is the wildlife pretty much follow those plant communities at a really broad scale. You can predict that you know, if you're in a fresh marsh, you're going to see a whole lot more alligators than if you're in a brackish marsh. And if you're in a salt marsh, you're not going to see any alligators nesting there. And so uh, that's one of the broadest ways to classify. I'm just recognizing that the salinity of the, mar- of the water determines the vegetation and the wildlife that you're going to find there. Yeah, and so talking a little bit about, um, you know, the gradient of, of salinities and kind of what we often refer to as estuaries, right, which is from that freshwater habitat to kind of to brackish or intermediate to saltwater, what are some of those dynamics within the estuary, um, you know, that support different types of wildlife and kind of provide different habitat? And, you know, do some wildlife need all? Do some wildlife so- solely rely on, you know, freshwater habitat? Um, can you talk a little bit about that that process and kind of how an estuary uh, supports wildlife in Louisiana? And there are a few species who can use the entire gradient. Uh, you look at your uh, the great blue heron or the egrets and ibis, you'll find them, you know, uh, from fresh to salt marsh. But they're gonna there's a, the carrying capacity for those animals is higher in the fresh marshes, and you're gonna find more egrets per acre of fresh marsh than you will in salt marsh. Um, uh, but a lot of them can't handle that range. Alligators won't take that range. Mink won't go to salt marsh. The river otter won't go to salt marsh year-round. Uh, you know, sometimes a year, even the salt marshes in Louisiana get fresh, and so you can have alligators coming out into areas that are, you know, later in the year going to be too salty for alligators. Same thing with the river otter. But, you know, the again, whether we're talking about... Uh, Year-round use or just part of the use, there are more wildlife in the fresher marshes than in the salty marshes. And I know um, you've spent, obviously, a lot of your career and a lot of time in kind of our coastal area. And I was talking to one of your colleagues earlier who mentioned, you know, that you spent a lot of time on the Bird's Foot Delta. Um, have you seen the coast and some of these, um, like, habitats, whether it's freshwater or saltwater, um, change in the time that you've been studying it? Oh, yeah. Good grief. Uh, you know, I did, uh, uh, way back in the 1980s, I did my master's over at Marsh Island Wildlife Refuge, which is southwest of Morgan City. And then there I got to watch, uh, uh, I got to see marshes, uh, and then I visited them again 10 years later with a grad student. We actually measured them. By that time, I was a professor and had my own grad student. We actually measured the erosion. You know, it's a very gradual erosion that happens in these marsh, interior marsh ponds that are you know, really too shallow for most people to ever get to. You have to get to them by airboat. So I've seen that kind of break up. Uh, for my dissertation, I watched the, the really rapid, you know, where hundreds of acres would uh, turn to open water over just a few months. And you set up a study and you come back and so it's just all sunk down. Uh, the, it, the, we call it the collapse. And then you mentioned the bird's foot. Uh, you know, I worked there before I went to grad school. I've been going back again uh, just for the past 10 years. And uh, there's different. I get to watch areas turn from open water back into marsh again because they're, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries is using the run the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or using the river, taking advantage of the capability down there to let it build uh, new wetlands, even as a, a larger landscape around them degrades. Yeah, and we're going to... I was gonna say, I've gotten to see it all. I see the breakup and I see the building. Yeah, and I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure it's difficult to see, you know, such drastic change, particularly the breakup um, part of it. And we're going to talk a little bit about the building, but in terms of, you know, how this land loss affects wildlife species, 
Um, you know, what are the species in Louisiana that are threatened by our continued and ongoing land loss crisis? Uh, some of them are, are migratory, and, and Eric will probably talk a lot about the migratory birds that use it. Uh, uh, you know, the, the egrets and the ibis, uh, the waterfowl. All the you know, a dozen species of duck that you know they breed up in um, North Dakota or Canada or even up the Arctic, and they, they they're born up there. They migrate on down through here, go to Central South America, and then back again. And either on the way back or once they get there, they find a mate and repeat the process and you know so we've got those species use our marshes and you know if those the if our marshes aren't here for those species we're afraid that there are going to be fewer of those species now not every one of those species is limited by the amount of migratory habitat they might be limited by breeding habitat up north or wintering habitat but it, it, our marshes are critical critical for them but there's no doubt that our resident species that depend upon our marsh are definitely threatened and uh, you know the alligator is uh, yeah, it's a big, you know, in the field we call it charismatic megafauna. It's big. Everyone knows about it. And people might get, you know, a little tired of alligators and think they're kind of silly, but, I mean, that's a huge, literally it's a huge animal, and it is important ecologically, and it's important um, for money. And that's another one that depends upon our marshes, and we'll lose it as we lose coastal Louisiana. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, kind of the alligators' comeback. Um, and also, I want to talk to you a little bit more about some of the solutions and signs of hope. You're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll be back shortly after the break. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Hebert, and I'm here with Dr. Andy Nyman. Dr. Nyman is professor of wetland wildlife ecology with LSU's School of Renewable Natural Resources. So, Andy, before the break, we were talking a little bit about some of the challenges that um, you know our wildlife face with the ongoing land loss crisis in Louisiana. I want to hit on one point in particular, which uh, is in the master plan and the state often talks about, which is the future without action. What happens if nothing is done. So can you talk a little bit about some of the impacts that you expect uh, our wildlife to experience if we don't, you know, take this seriously and advance some large-scale restoration projects in the master plan? Yeah, sure. The uh, I think it's real easy to picture that. If, if you go to Texas or Florida, you know, they've got alligators and they've got oysters, but they don't have them like we do. And without uh, serious uh, uh, efforts to manage the resources we have, then we're going to end up looking a lot like that, except that we'll have this long river sticking out, going all the way out to the uh, edge of the continental shelf, and there'll be nothing but levees and ships going up and down it, and there'll be no marshes around it. And the coastline everywhere else will back up you know, quite a bit. And uh, we'll have that little tiny band of freshwater and little tiny estuaries, uh, just like they do in Texas and Florida. That's, that's our future if we don't do anything. And, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, and certainly anyone that's familiar with um, the ongoing, you know, coastal debate is aware that there is some opposition to sediment diversions, mainly from those uh, concerned about uh, what the effects will be to oysters and other fisheries. Um, But is the status quo of what we have sustainable into the future? No, what we have is is not sustainable. You know, we... Uh, with no action, we're going to end up like our neighboring states. And, uh, you know, maybe the way to think about it is that if we don't do anything, you know, we're going to end up, I don't know, let's say, you know, we'll end up with 20% of the seafood we have now. Uh, but if we do diversions, 
but but the thing is, to get to that twenty percent will take kind of a long, a very long time, you know, decades. But if we do diversions, we're going to real quickly get to say maybe forty percent. You know, we're going to end up at a higher level, but we're going to take that cut fast. That's that's the the the, tra- the, the challenge or the problem or the heartache with diversions. Diversions take a long time to build land, but right away they push uh, push out the marine species, and the oysters are going to take a lot of help from us to move. We've got to put the hard bottom where the salinity is going to be right right away, and that that's what the problem. And so, you know, some people are saying, look, it's just too much of a of a pill to pay all up front. I'd rather end up worse off 50 years from now, but because I don't have to be as bad in the next 10 years. And you know, that's. It's not my opinion, but I think that's one way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, it is a, a difficult debate, and really, in terms of weighing, you know, the short-term uh, impacts versus long-term. But you, all, you also have to think about. And one of the things we talk about often is, you know, it's not just effects to wildlife; it's effects effects to people, it's effects to economies, and uh, you know, and jobs. As you lose that wetland buffer, and you know, more places become vulnerable to storms and storm surge. So. Um, it is. It is certainly something that our organizations have worked on a lot, and folks can, um, you know, go on our website MississippiRiverDelta.org to kind of learn a little bit more. But moving on to some of the, um, you know, signs of hope. So in terms of, you know, what we can do, you know, what we have um, in terms of avoiding that future without action. Can you talk a little bit about some of the specific projects um, that can help protect Louisiana's wildlife for the long term? Yeah. So you know, a lot of people want to. Uh uh, talk about, uh, and it's true, uh, constructing marshes. You know, you dig, a, you go out and mine sediments from one place that's underwater, and then you stack those sediments up someplace else to build a wetland. And we can do that across our coast. It's very expensive, however. Uh, it's so expensive that we can't afford to, to build our way out of this uh, problem we have. Uh, we, the, the, the funds are just too limited. We can also uh, try to undo some of the damages we've done by uh, some of the increases in flooding stress we've created on our landscape, some of the increases in salinity stress. And a lot of people refer to that as hydrologic restoration. And, and that's something that we can do coastwide. But the river diversions are, are extremely important because they're the cheapest in, in the long run. They will keep building wetlands for decades, 10, 50, 100 years. Uh, and, you know, we pay the cost up front, and then just keep on building and building. With a constructive wetland, we build it today, and it's never getting any bigger at all. And so the diversions, they're, they're only uh, useful next to the river, within five miles or ten miles or so of the river. Uh, but they are the biggest bang for the buck. You know, I, I, you know comparing diversions to constructive wetlands, constructive wetlands like paying someone else to change oil in your car, if you got a bunch, a bunch of money, if you had enough money, yeah, you do it all the time. But you know, we don't have that much money, and we need to let the river build our wetlands for us. It's a whole lot cheaper than using a lot of heavy equipment to build our wetlands. Yeah, and I mean, we we talked about that on on a prior show when we were diving into diversions and the master plan. And in the current 2017 master plan, I think the state has identified um, 18 billion dollars worth of marsh creation projects. So they are doing that, but you know, they also have diversions in there. I think around uh, you know six billion. So. Um, I think it is, you're right, that it is important that, you know, the diversions are constructed also to support investments in levees and support investments in uh, these other projects that are ongoing. So, Andy, I do know you were part of a group of scientists from across, across coastal Louisiana 
um, that convened over the course of a year um, to provide recommendations on how a sediment diversion could be operated. You know, and I think when y'all convened, you were hoping to look at how do you maximize the land building through a sediment diversion while considering other impacts to the ecosystem. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that process was like and some of the recommendations that you all made? It was absolutely fascinating. Uh, we, we met once a month, and uh, at each monthly meeting, we pretended as though the only thing we needed to do with the river was whatever the focus of that month's meeting was. So, you know, one meeting, it's like the only thing we're going to worry about is if we want to ensure navigation in the river. Another meeting, that the only thing we want to ensure is land building of new wetlands. Another meeting, it was we only want to ensure, we want to focus on preserving existing wetlands. And another one was all about, you know, fish and oysters. And another one was about fishermen. And so it was really cool to spend an entire, you know, day focusing on how we manage the river for this one particular aspect of our society. And then in the end, we made some recommendations, and we said that if, if land building was the only thing that mattered, we'd leave the diversion open 365 days a year. But it's not the only thing that matters. We, this is a part of our culture and our economy, and we can't take the shock of putting all the um, changes out there right away. And so we're get, we've recommended some uh, trade-offs, but we still think we can get... A, a large majority of the building capacity of the river in the winter and early spring, and then later, by mid to late spring, focusing on the rising part of the river. The, there isn't one just spring flood of the river. You get peaks. And each peak, when the river's rising, it's actually gouging its channel a little deeper to accommodate that flow when you get more sediment. And that first half of that peak is the one we want to put out of the river. And then once the, uh, that peak gets to the diversion structure, go ahead and shut the diversion structure and let that water continue on down the navigation channel. And so, yeah, it's going to slow land building, but it's also going to make it easier on our economy to adopt, adapt to the new salinity conditions in the marshes. Yeah, and, and for folks that are interested in reading kind of the group's recommendations and their report, you can go on our website, mississippiriverdelta.org slash report. Um, and, and read their recommendations in full there. But I think, like you were saying, one of the diversions was that you operate on the kind of the peak, right, or the rising limb of the river and carry that uh, sediment through the diversion at that point. And then also, since it's in the winter, um, it won't have as much uh, impact on some of the fisheries that are in the basin. Is that correct? You got it, yes. <laughs> I actually, I worked with Andy and, and some of the scientists on on that report just in terms of uh, getting it out to the public. So uh, that's kind of how I, I, get, I, must, I must have learned something in that process. <laughs> well, great. Um, and so, I mean, I, I think, you know, you, like I said, there's, there's been a lot um, that you've learned, you know, from the Atchafalaya Basin, from the Bird's Foot Delta. Um, are, do you see when you go out there, like really distinct uh, differences between areas that are gaining land and maybe areas where we're losing land? Oh, it, it, it's, it's night and day. That's one of the most wonderful things about doing coastal wetland research is I, I go to coastal wetlands from Texas, southwest Louisiana, Rockefeller Refuge, Sabine, all through. So I see it all. And it, it is, it's, they're different worlds. Uh, they're entirely different worlds. And, and that's one of the thing that we're, you know, <clears throat> we're losing wetlands. But we're not losing them equally. We're losing, I talked about the fresh and non-fresh marshes. We're losing the fresher, the fresh marshes faster than the non-fresh marshes. Okay, and we're gonna we're gonna have to have you back on soon, uh, Doctor Nyman, to talk more. But thank you so much for being on. How are our LSU Tigers gonna do this year? Oh, uh, this is the year. All right, like the same. all right. Thank, thank you, you so much. Have a great day. Yep. Bye bye. Bye bye. 
Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches, where we're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. Today, we're talking about wildlife. And, uh, you know, some might think that the LSU Tigers are the most important wildlife in Louisiana. And uh, to back that up, we have another LSU Tiger on the line, uh, Dr. Eric Johnson, Director of Bird Conservation with Audubon, Louisiana. How's it going, Eric? I'm well. How are you, Jacques? I'm doing well. So Eric and I actually worked together for Audubon, Louisiana. Um, and Eric, I know you grew up in Pittsburgh, um, but you spend more time in our coastal wetlands and marshes and beaches than probably most in Louisiana. So how did you make that transition from Pennsylvania to coastal Louisiana? Yeah, well, first of all, go Tigers. Um, it was a it was a very interesting transition, um, having grown up in a pretty landlocked place. Um, but I ate my first po' boy just a few weeks after I arrived here, and I've been hooked ever since. Uh, the, the wetlands here are spectacular, um, extensive, uh, full of life. Um, it's a really, really exceptional place to be studying birds and to go bird watching. Yeah, like Dr. Nyman said in the prior segment, I mean, in terms of the quantity, that's really like few other places. So, Eric, you work for Audubon, Louisiana, as do I, which is the state office of the National Audubon Society. Um, for those who may not be familiar with us or who may think we're the zoo or aquarium, can you tell us a little bit about what Audubon, uh, Louisiana does here? Yeah, right. So um, at Audubon, Louisiana, we use birds as a lens for informing conservation initiatives. So, um, you know, we see birds as, as part of a much bigger, larger ecosystem. And where birds thrive, people prosper, you know, the, 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 our economies are inherently linked with uh, the, the, you know, productive uh, wildlife in, in their habitats. And so birds are a really good barometer, a good indicator of how our coastal wetlands are doing. Yeah, and for that reason, I mean, Audubon, Louisiana, um, and Eric and myself and others that work for our organization are deeply involved in the fight to restore Louisiana's coast for people and for birds. So, Eric, why, you know, is Louisiana's coast so important to so many bird species? Yeah, well, so, you know, the Mississippi River Delta system um, and its estuaries are just so extensive. It's the last stop that birds see as they're migrating south uh, to Central and South America in the fall. And, of course, right now is spring migration. Um, is really picking up right now, so a lot of those birds are coming back across the Gulf of Mexico or around the Gulf of Mexico, and Louisiana is the first land that they see as they as they cross. So, you know, 100 million migratory birds um, and nesting and wintering birds use the state of Louisiana at some point in their life cycle each year. So, from a, from the estuaries to the bottomland hardwood forests to the coastal chenilles, um, you know, all of these different habitats. 
provide a home uh, or refuge for uh, different kinds of birds. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, I didn't fully know myself before I started in this role. And uh, a lot of people don't know that even to the smallest, you know, hummingbird, they make a nonstop journey across the Gulf of Mexico and Louisiana. Like you said, first place they uh, see when they come back and last place that they leave. So and- to imagine that a little uh, bird that weighs just a couple of pennies can cross a 500 or 600 mile single flight um, that takes 18 hours to, uh, you know, from land over water back to land. It's a remarkable and I mean, no wonder that, you know, people and, and others can be so fascinated by these species. So in terms of, you know, the land loss crisis and the effect that it's having on our birds, um, you know, since I started this job, I've seen Cat Island, which was badly oiled from the Deepwater Horizon spill and also an important um, rookery for brown pelicans. I mean, it, it almost com- has completely disappeared. Um, what are some of the effects, you know, the other effects that we're seeing from Louisiana's land loss crisis on birds in particular? Well, most obviously when you lose land, when you lose habitat, um, you lose the number of birds that the landscape can support, right? So if, if marsh converts to open water, the birds that depend on marsh like clapper rails, um, seaside sparrows, um, and even foresters' turns and things like that will um, no longer have habitat in which to raise their young, in which to forage. Um, so that can have, uh, you know, have you know, large consequences on bird populations across the region. So, you know, the oil spill obviously was was devastating for many reasons, but um, in addition to that short-term impact of, of birds getting coated in oil, the, the long-term erosive factors that it exasperated um, can be really detrimental. So you mentioned Cat Island um, as an island that has disappeared. That's actually um, sort of a microcosm of what's happening across the entire coast. So as our barrier islands are, are, are threatened with sea level rise and, and erosive forces, um, we have to rebuild them um, to, to make sure that there is habitat remaining for different kinds of birds. And are we starting to see um, declines in certain species as a result of coastal land loss? Well, in some cases, it's actually really hard to know. Um, so we don't have a lot of good long-term data sets for things like marsh birds in Louisiana. Um, but it obviously stands to reason that if the habitat's disappearing, these, these populations are disappearing as well. So, so things like um, Curlew Island and Stake Island, uh, back off the Chandelure Islands, um, once supported the largest tern colony in the United States. So about 65,000 pairs of sandwich terns and royal terns used to nest on those islands. And um, since then, those islands have largely washed away, much like Cat Island. So those birds, those nesting birds, haven't, those kinds of numbers haven't shown up in other places um, where, where, where bird biologists uh, do regular studies across the Gulf of Mexico. So it stands to reason that the loss of those islands have really impacted the, those bird populations. And a lot of these seabirds, you know, pelicans, royal terns, um, things like that that nest on these offshore islands, um, even the brown pelican that's doing really well today only nests in large numbers on a handful of islands. They're still very vulnerable um, to, to coastal erosion and land loss. And in terms of some of the critical restoration projects, um, you know, that really will help with bird habitat and just kind of helping to either restore or maintain bird um, species populations, what are some of those projects and how are they important to birds? 
Well, the most important thing we need to think about is how to restore the ecosystem. Um, and we can do that in, in various ways, right? So marsh restoration projects and hydrologic restoration projects um, go a long way in sort of uh, patching up different parts of the landscape and, and bringing it back. Um, diversions, obviously, um, sort of re, you know, rebuilding that connectivity of the, of the river back to its estuaries and creating the, the systems and putting those systems back in place. And I know you and Andy talked about that some as well. Um, but those sort of large-scale restoration projects will really have um, long-term benefits uh, to all different kinds of, of birds and, and their populations. Um, but we also need the restoration of these barrier islands and some of the nesting islands offshore. Um, so now that some of the NERDA dollars are, are um, being put into uh, restoration, um, islands like Queen Bess Island are on the slate for being restored. And, of course, Queen Bess Island and Barataria Bay supports, you know, some of the most spectacular um, colonies of, of brown pelicans and reddish egrets and royal terns and things like that. So, you know, those kinds of projects um, all collectively are going to be really important for ensuring that we have sustainable bird populations. Right. And for those who may not know, NERDA is the Natural Resource Damage Assessment, um, and it is being administered through, with funds from the uh, BP oil spill settlement to, you know, restore um, you know, habitat and species that were injured by the oil spill. So, Eric, I know the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority recently completed its largest restoration project to date, the Caminata Headland Restoration, which is pr approximately 13 miles of beaches and dunes from Bell Pass Outlet at Bayou Lafouche all the way to uh, the end of Almer's Island. And I know you wrote recently about the importance of barrier island restoration to birds, but also how important it is to monitor, mo monitor and manage these uh, projects after restoration, correct? So can you talk a little bit about why that's important and some of the work that you've done um, to that end? Yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, the Caminata Headland Project is, um, is, is just massive. It's been a really impressive um, thing to witness. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a complicated story, but there's birds that nest on these beaches um, that are what I consider early successional species. They, they thrive on habitat that's been recently disturbed um, through a storm event or an overwash event, and it scours the vegetation away um, and creates this open, sandy um, area. And, and a restoration project like Caminata Headland mimics that sort of process in many ways. It has this open, new sand. Um, it can be very attractive to things like least turns. Um, the challenge with projects like that, though, is in a typical situation, a hurricane would have also sort of lowered the mammal predator population, so things like coyotes and raccoons. Um, a restoration project doesn't do that. So um, it can sort of serve as this potential problem where nesting birds will come and want to use the island um, or the, the, you know, that beach, but there are so many predators around still that it actually can be harmful to these birds. So it's really important to understand those sort of dynamics so that we can go into these um, restoration projects afterwards and manage them appropriately to maximize their value for nesting birds. Yeah, and one thing you taught me I didn't realize, but apparently coyotes are good swimmers and can kind of swim out to those barrier islands. So um, right. not good for birds. But, right. you know, in terms of, you know, the work that you and your team do on, on coastal stewardship, I know you, you work in Grand Isle, you work at Holly Beach um, to protect beaches for nesting birds and educate the public. Starting to get warmer, you know, people might be heading out to the beach soon. So do you have any messages for people that are going out to beaches on how they can protect the spaces that are necessary for bird nests? Yeah, yeah. So so these birds that nest on beaches, they rely on camouflage to hide their eggs and their chicks. So it actually takes about two months 
um, from, from these birds to lay their egg until the chicks are able to fly. Um, so those eggs and chicks can be really vulnerable to disturbance. Uh, the parents need to be nearby to incubate them to protect them from predators. And so if we're too close to those nesting areas, it can really, you know, have impacts on those birds. So one of the things we do is we work with local communities and we work with the landowners in the area um, to put up protective uh, signage um, to let people know that there are nesting birds in the area. So if you're out on the beach this summer and you happen to see these signs indicating that they're nesting birds, you may not see the birds because they can be hard to find sometimes, but um, I can promise you that they're in there and uh, you know, staying outside of those protected areas will really help those help those birds survive. And it's, you know, it's perfectly, perfectly um, normal to be able to share the beach with, with birds um, and have a place for them to nest and a place for us to recreate um, so it's actually worked out really well. Great. And we're going to talk with Eric when we're back right after the break. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. And we're back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Hebert, and I'm here with Dr. Eric Johnson, Director of Bird Conservation for Audubon, Louisiana. Um, So, Eric, I know today was a really big day uh, for Audubon. Uh, You guys captured or recaptured um, a prothonotary warbler that you had tagged uh, last year. Can you talk a little bit about um, why this is exciting and what the program aims to do? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, this is extremely exciting. Uh, we deployed 22 geolocators, and what a geolocator is is a small device that we attach to a bird um, that records light levels, and if we can retrieve that unit off the bird a year later, the light data will give us latitude and longitude information. We can determine sunrise and sunset um, and therefore figure out latitude and longitude on any given day of the year where the bird was. So it gives us sort of a history of where that bird went to. And so prothonotary warblers is, are birds that breed in our bottomland hardwood forests. Louisiana supports about 25% of the world nesting population of the species. Um, and, but we don't know a lot about where they go for the winter, and uh, the geolocators are providing that information um, for us. So to get, you know, to start getting these birds back um, that we tagged last year is just super exciting. You know, this is this is sort of new new information that um, that ornithologists haven't haven't ever known before. So it's very exciting. Yeah, and it's really cool to see, you know, images of the birds. You you put what looks like almost like a backpack on them, a tiny backpack that doesn't affect their flying ability, correct? Right, right. Yeah, the, the birds themselves only weigh about the equivalent of five pennies. Um, so very, very lightweight. And then the geolocator weighs less than 3% of the bird's body weight. So we attach it to the bird, like you said, a lot like a backpack. It's, it has a couple of straps that actually wrap around the bird's leg. And then the, the geolocator itself sort of rests on the on the lower back of the bird much like if we were carrying a backpack yeah and if you want to check out that um, program and learn more about it you can go to la.audubon.org to kind of see and learn more about the prothonotary warbler program and and help support it it's a really important program to uh, understand some of these how louisiana's habitat's important to these species and also where else is important so eric i know um you know audubon louisiana is a property owner and we have you know first-hand experience 
um, with land loss and, and hurricanes with our Paul J. Rainey Wildlife Sanctuary in Vermilion Parish. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit of overview of the sanctuary and, and why it's so important um, to us at Audubon, but also to a, of a wide variety of bird species? Yeah, sure. So the Rainey Sanctuary in Vermilion Parish um, uh, is about 26,000 acres of marsh. The only way to get actually to it is is by boat. It's uh, There are no roads to the sanctuary. It's Audubon's oldest and largest sanctuary in our network. Um, it, uh, it goes back to 1924 when it was donated to the Audubon Society. Um, so it's really important for birds. More than 200 species of birds have been reported there, including the, the endangered and reintroduced whooping crane. Um, we had several whooping cranes winter at our sanctuary for a couple of years. Um, but also other endangered species like piping plovers use the beaches, and then of course the marshes are home to a whole variety of different kinds of wildlife, including birds. Um, and so the, the sanctuary is embedded within the larger Chenier Plain, which is considered a globally important bird area because of the, uh, of the importance of, of the habitat to different species of birds of conservation concern. So it's, um, you know, a really important place for waterfowl, for marsh birds, and like I said, whooping cranes and piping plovers. Yeah, and speaking of whooping cranes, I know that the first uh, whooping crane was born in the wild in Louisiana um, last year, since the 1930s, I think was the last time. Um, and the mother of the chick, as you mentioned, spent some time at Rainy. So could you talk a little bit about the program that um, Louisiana Department of Wildlife and Fisheries executed and what they're trying to do in terms of bringing back this important species? Yeah, so the whooping crane um, is, a, is a critically endangered bird. There's only about 600 in the world um, and only about 300 in the wild. So there's been a really active um, captive rearing program to, to try to reintroduce the birds back into the wild. And in 2011, the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries, after many years of research and working with different universities and, and professors, um, to study the ecology of these birds and to study what kind of um, food resources might be available to them in Louisiana, uh, began a reintroduction program here in Louisiana. Uh, so currently, um, there are about 40 uh, free-roaming whooping cranes around southwest Louisiana that have been reintroduced. Um, you know, about a dozen or, or a couple dozen every year get reintroduced into Louisiana. Not all of them survive. But now, you know, five, six years into the program, they're actually starting to see these birds get old enough where they're, they're mating with each other, they're building nests, and like you said last year, even the very first chick uh, raised in over 70 years in Louisiana was, was hatched. So it's a really exciting time for, to see these birds coming back to the, to the state. Yeah, and it must be an exciting time to have you know, your job as well. And so I'm curious, um, in addition to kind of managing our rainy sanctuary as a, you know, a bird sanctuary, we actually execute some restoration on there out there to provide a, a model for other landowners. Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, restoration projects that we've done at Rainey and, and how we kind of use it as a living laboratory of coastal restoration? Yeah, so, um, you know, we lost about a thousand acres of, of, of habitat, of marsh, to, uh, to erosion after Hurricanes Rita and Ike. So we've been fighting... Um, ever since then to try to bring back that marsh and try to prevent more of it from disappearing. Um, just like elsewhere in the coast, you know, land loss is a big issue um, at our sanctuary. So um, we've, we've spearheaded a number of different projects. We've experimented with small dredge technologies that even a single person could, could use to rebuild marsh. 
Um, so we've been experimenting with that kind of technology. We partnered with the Bertucci company to use a slightly larger dredge that um, built us 15 acres of, of marsh in about four weeks. Um, so that was a really exciting project that was funded through a grant by the National Fish and Wildlife Federation. Um, we work with neighboring landowners, the Rainy Conservation Alliance, um, where we sort of ignore the, the property boundaries and um, propose restoration projects through Quipra and other funding sources to restore the hydrology back into the, um, back into the marsh, to, to reintroduce fresh water back into these marshes, um, and to do different kinds of marsh restoration projects. So, um, you know, we, we take these different experimental approaches. We've experimented with different terrace designs. I mean, a terrace is just sort of a piled-up um, mound of, of, of soil, but sort of in a long linear line or in different configurations to slow down water and let um, submerge aquatic vegetation come back. So there's lots of different ways we can kind of experiment with different kinds of restoration tools um, to restore uh, you know, the functioning e ecosystem. That's great. And Eric, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask you, um, I know Audubon has a lot of programs for and volunteer opportunities, whether you're looking to go out on a beach, like you mentioned, and kind of help protect, protect bird habitat, whether you're, you know, looking to be a citizen scientist in your own backyard. So where can people go to learn more and sign up? Yeah, so people can always visit our website, which is easy to remember. It's la, like Louisiana, .audubon.org. And you can learn about um, our prothonotary warbler project, our beach nesting bird stewardship project, some of our restoration projects, and we're always um, interested in getting volunteers helping us check bird boxes um, to help us steward nesting birds on the beach, um, to help us conduct bird monitoring surveys. Uh, so there's lots of different ways that people can help and get involved. That's great. And um, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And again, you can go to la.audubon.org to learn more and help support the work that um, our organization is doing. So that's pretty much our show for today. Um, next week, I hope you all survived uh, today without Simone, but next week Simone will be back and she and I will be talking uh, to some folks about New Orleans and why New Orleans is a coastal city and what um, why people should care you know, in New Orleans about what happens on the coast. So thank you so much for listening. This is Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990 AM.